chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we'll be reading verse 12 through to verse 26. Let's hear the word of God. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am going to, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, with your joy in Christ Jesus, will overflow on account of me. Thank you. 
for the bathroom. It is the clock. Which I started at absolute zero and is now at 87 hours, 22 minutes and 17 seconds. From Memphis, America to Nikolai in Russia, 87 hours. 87 hours is a shameful outrage. This is just an egg timer. What if it isn't something else, like your paycheck, or a poison barrier, or adoption papers? 87 hours is eternity. The Commonwealth was created in the last time. What is the plot? And make this couple in 87 hours. What is the what? What are you saying about me? I tell them what they expect. This man was a struck from down he stole the boy was possible. I borrowed it. I borrowed it. I can't buy it. And I got my packages delivered. And that's what these people are going to start doing. They're start doing whatever it takes. Because in three hours and two minutes now, every one of these packages has to be on the big truck and on its way to the airport. Okay, well, if you're wondering what that was, that was a clip from the film Castaway, starring Tom Hanks. He plays a character called uh, Chuck Noland, who is a, a, an executive with FedEx. And there's a clip there of him, of course, um, motivating all his highly motivated Russian staff to, uh, to be good workers for FedEx and to deliver the parcels on time. But um, if you've ever seen the film, you'll know actually what happens next is he gets on a plane to head back to New York, to headquarters, and uh, they enter a storm, and the plane crashes, and he's the only survivor. He's washed onto a desert island, and that's why it's called Castaway, and in fact, it's the most boring film you've ever watched, because for the next, I think, I don't know, 20 minutes, there's not a word spoken, uh, I don't think. It's uh, one of those strange films. Anyway, uh, he's only down on this desert island, and... Um, and as he, the interesting thing is, that as he sort of comes ashore, staggers ashore, washed onto the beach of this desert island, are hundreds of FedEx parcels. They're all sort of washing onto the beach. And you see him picking up these FedEx parcels, sort of sopping wet. And he opens one or two to see what's inside. And here he is, this guy, who is absolutely, as you can see in the film, meant to be passionate about getting FedEx parcels out on time. That is his passion. You can see it, can't you? Uh, you know, he's obsessed with being on time and, and delivering his parcels. Suddenly, he's surrounded by all these FedEx parcels that he's no hope of delivering. He's stranded on a desert island. And uh, he's on there for a couple of years. And uh, finally, he's rescued. He gets back to America. And the woman that he'd actually left right at the start of the film to go to Russia and was about to propose to, or I think he may even give her the ring. I don't know if you remember the film. But anyway, he can't, you know, properly propose to us. He's rushed off on his business. He gets back and the woman that he was going to be marrying has actually married another man. And he's absolutely devastated. And what you see in this guy is a man whose world has completely fallen apart. And that which was his passion, delivering, you know, his business, delivering parcels, in the end, what's it worth? You know, stripped away from him. And he's got nothing. What I want to talk about for a few minutes in this session is this. I really want to ask a question. What is your passion? And does your passion really matter? How significant is your passion? 
In fact, I want to ask three questions that arise out of that, really. The first question is, what is your passion in life? What matters most to you? What do you love the most? Secondly, what is your purpose in life? What do you, what do you think you're here to do? What are your goals, your ambitions? And thirdly, what are your priorities in life? What's at the top of your to-do list? What determines how you're going to spend your money and your time? Three incredibly important questions. And actually, when you get the answer to those three questions, it will really tell us everything we need to know about you as a person. So, for Chuck Noland, his passion in life was FedEx, the business, delivering parcels on time. His purpose in life was to get those Russians to to do the job, to to be efficient. And uh, it, it dictated his priorities in life. So he goes off to Russia. He gives his life to the business. I guess you could ask the same question of um, Alex Ferguson. You know, if you ask Alex, Sir Alex Ferguson what is his passion in life, I'm sure he would say my passion in life is football. I love the game. It's my heartbeat. It's in my blood. What is his purpose in life? To make Manchester United the most successful and loathed football club. I mean, uh, the most successful football club in the world. And what is his priority? I'm sure that his whole calendar, his whole schedule revolves around soccer. Being down there at the football club, making sure it's the best, training the players, buying the best players. I'm sure he eats and drinks and sleeps football. Now, I want to ask the question this evening, not of Chuck Noland or Alex Ferguson, but I want to ask the question of the Apostle Paul. I want us to imagine tonight that we could actually interview Paul and ask Paul those same three questions. Paul, what is your passion in life? Paul, what is your purpose? What do you think you're there for? What are your ambitions in life? Paul, what are your priorities in life? What's at the top of your to-do list? What determines and dictates how you spend your time and energies and money? Now, of course, we can't literally do that, but actually, in a sense, I think we can in this passage in Philippians. It's... um, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting book for lots of reasons, but I think one of the reasons it's very interesting is because it's one of those books where we get a real personal glimpse into the Apostle Paul himself. And uh, what really drives Paul, what Paul, makes Paul tick. We read together that passage, of course, Paul writing from prison to this Philippian church. And uh, he's writing, of course, to encourage them. He's dealing with one or two issues. Uh, it seems that there's schism going on within the Philippian church. Um, and so it's not that Paul is being kind of self-indulgent or self-obsessive. He talks about himself and his own ministry for a purpose. But what I want to do just for a few minutes is just look at how he talks about his own ministry and his own, his own life, really, and what drives him, what his passion is. So if we were to say, Paul, what is your passion in life? Then I think Paul would answer in verse 21. This is what Paul says in verse 21 of chapter 1 of Philippians. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul would say my passion is not a thing. It's not an occupation. It's not a hobby. My passion is a person. My passion is Christ. For me to live is Christ. Christ sums up everything about me. My life, my interests. My love, my love is Christ. And so for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
Because to die means I'm with Christ, the one that I love. I'm nearer, closer, more intimate with Jesus. And Jesus is my passion. So to die for Paul is gain. And that's why in verse 23, he's able to say, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Paul says, you know, if it was just down to me, if it was just left to me, I would love to leave planet Earth and go straight to heaven and be with Jesus. Because he means so much to me, because he is my passion. Paul is saying, Jesus is the one person who matters to me more than any other. And that is why Paul, of course, is able to say that to die is gain. Because, as I've said already, for Paul to die means that he's closer to the one that he loves the most. Of course, a materialist can never say that, can he? Sir Alex Ferguson can never say that. Chuck could never say that. Because actually, death for them would rob them of the thing that they love the most, wouldn't it? It would rob Sir Alex Ferguson of his football, of his club, of his passion. The interesting thing, I think, that strikes me about the film is that when Chuck is stranded on this desert island, he's robbed of, of his passion. He's reminded of it, of course, all these parcels all around him, but, but he can't deliver them. Utterly robbed. It's, it's the, the frustration, the futility of it all. But Paul says, actually, for me to die would be the very best thing because I'd be with Christ. If you think about it, actually, only the Christian, and only the Christian who is passionate about Jesus can really say to die is gain, can't they? Materialists can't say it. To die, to the materialist, is disaster. Do you know, actually, let's be honest, sometimes to die for the Christian might be a real disappointment because we've got so much invested in this life We love so much about this world. But for Paul, who is passionate about Jesus, he says, no, to die is gain. Somebody said this, death is only to be feared to the degree that it threatens our greatest loves and robs you of what you value the most. But as we've seen, Paul values Christ the most and loves him the most. And so death for him is gain. We've called this session... The evangelist's greatest challenge. There are many great challenges in the life of of an evangelist, in fact, in any body involved in Christian ministry, aren't there? The evangelist, I guess, one of the great challenges is reaching a lost world. And a lost world that is so secular in our society now. I know they're not more lost theologically, you know what I mean, but they're so lost, aren't they? So far from from anything to do with God or, or Christianity. And, and you see the lostness of our society, and it's evident so clearly, isn't it, in that vote that took place in Parliament just this last week, where we can just sort of, at a whim of, what was it? How many MPs are there, Nick? 500? 600 MPs? You know, we let 600 people decide that actually 2,500 babies don't really matter. You know, just a choice, isn't it? Just this, that's how far we are from, from, from God and godly standards. It's a very lost world. It's a challenge to reach a world that is lost like that. Of course, every Christian worker and every evangelist faces the challenge too of rousing an often lethargic church. And sometimes that's a bigger challenge than reaching a lost world, isn't it? You know, to get Christians to see their responsibility for the lost and that they need to be involved. And actually, it is their responsibility as much as it is your responsibility. 
That's tough. That is a great, great challenge. But you know, I don't believe either of those two challenges are the greatest challenge that we face. What is the greatest challenge that I face? I want to suggest that actually, perhaps the greatest challenge that we all face is maintaining that personal passion for Jesus. That personal, inner spiritual life so that we really do love Jesus more than anyone else. That actually, really, if we were given the choice tomorrow, we'd love to leave planet Earth to be with Christ. We really would regard that as far, far better to maintain that kind of passion. It's not easy, is it? In fact, I think it's incredibly difficult. It's so easy in Christian ministry, isn't it, to be so very, very busy with so many other things. So incredibly busy and yet so incredibly barren. I find that. I don't know if you do. Incredibly busy in Christian work. Meetings here, meetings there, one-on-ones here, one-on-one. Committees here, committees there. Your diary's absolutely jam-packed and your head's spinning. And you think, you know, how am I going to get time to eat, let alone, you know, relax or whatever. So easy, actually, in the midst of all of that busyness to be incredibly barren, full of what we're doing for God, but empty, actually, of any real passion for God. Now, somehow Paul maintained that passion for Jesus. And it wasn't because he was lazy. We're going to see in a minute. He was incredibly busy, incredibly active. But his activity, as we're going to see in a minute, arose out of his passion for Jesus. I wonder if ours does. Or I wonder if our activity just arises out of our schedule, our diary. Or even maybe the buzz that we get out of Christian ministry. Well, it's a big, big challenge I suppose there's lots of practical things we could talk about in maintaining your passion for Jesus. We could talk about the importance of our personal devotional life. I know one evangelist who said he would never open a letter or an email until he'd opened the Bible. I wish I could say that. Um, I know another Christian minister who said, it's almost comical when he says this, but he says, I never look on the face of my wife before I look on the face of the Lord. That's right, isn't it, Roger? I don't know how he does. Maybe they sleep in different rooms. We better not go there. But uh, Yeah, yeah, thank you. But uh, it's what he says. He says, I never look at... In other words, the number one priority in his life is that personal intimacy with Jesus. But I wonder if it is for you. Honestly, could you say that? Could you say today, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Jesus is my passion. And you can tell that because he's the person I love to be with. He's the person I love to learn about and hear about. He's the person I love to spend time in communion with. You can't keep me away. It's not a drudge, it's not a duty. It's just a delight to spend time with Jesus, alone with Jesus, when nothing else can intrude. Wow, is that true of me? I'm not sure it is very often. Certainly true of the Apostle Paul. What a standard for him to set for us in Christian ministry. Is my passion Jesus? Okay, Paul, what is your passion? He would say it's Christ. So, Paul, what is your purpose in life? What are you here for? What are you all about? Well, let me suggest that the answer to that will be found in verse 20. Here, Paul says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. Now, Paul here is speaking, isn't he, about that moment when he's going to be taken from the dungeon, from the prison, and brought before the judge. He's about to go on trial. He knows he's next on the line here. 
He knows they can threaten him with all kinds of things, probably death. And Paul says, when that moment comes, when that moment for me to, as it were, stick my neck on the block, nail my colours to the mast, put my life on the line, he says, I eagerly expect, I hope, that when that happens, I will in no way be ashamed. But I have sufficient courage to make a good testimony, that's what he's saying, to stand for Jesus, unmoved in the face of all their threats. Why? So that Christ will be exalted in my body. And he says, even if they do sentence me to death, my prayer is still that I'll go with my head held high, carrying a, a courageous, brave testimony for Jesus. So that whether by life or by death, Christ is exalted in my body. The last thing he wanted to do was let Jesus down in that moment of trial, that moment of testing. Why? Not so that people could say, well, wasn't Paul a brave guy? Look at the way that he went to martyrdom. Boy, we can write paperback books about him and, and extol the Apostle Paul. No, he says, I want to do that. I, I, I long that might be the truth because I want Christ to be exalted. I don't want anyone to speak ill of Jesus. I don't want anyone to say, oh, look, there you are. The Apostle Paul, he buckled under pressure. Christianity obviously doesn't mean much. Jesus is insignificant. That shame might be brought in the name of Christ. No, says Paul. I want Christ to be exalted. I want Christ to be honoured. Or as one version puts it, I want Christ to be magnified. What is my passion? My, my purpose, says Paul, is that Christ is magnified in my life, whether by life or by death. Because it's been pointed out that when that word magnified is used, it's the magnification of the telescope and not the microscope. The microscope makes little things look big. The telescope makes things that are big look as they really are. Huge. You know, stars that are huge and vast and enormous that seem so small in the night sky. We look through a telescope and we see them for what they really are. And Paul says, I want people to see Jesus for who he really is through my life. I want them to see that Christ is huge, he's, not, he's mighty, he's great. Wow. I wonder if that is my ambition. That Christ might be exalted in my body. I've got to be honest and say, you know, that in... Christian ministry is very easy for other motives, other purposes, other ambitions to creep in, isn't it? Very easy to want people to think well of us. And for our name to be well spoken of. And for us to be magnified and exalted. I'm sure we would all admit to that. And I suspect in Christian ministry more than any other area of, of, of the Christian work and the Christian life, because you're often very public, aren't you? You're in view, you're often at the front. You've often got other people listening to you, looking on. There's even this sense of power sometimes, isn't there? You know, this, I'm the leader, I'm the preacher, I'm the teacher. Well, Paul says it's all about Jesus. I think I was going to use an illustration to illustrate that verse there. I'd use the illustration of the school sports day. I don't know if any of you are fathers and have been to sports day, but um, I remember, uh, I've been a number of times, got four kids, and uh, at our sports day at school, the kids' sports day, they used to have a father's race. The final race of the day, after the kids have all run their hearts out, it would then be the dad's sports race. And, and they would all, you know, sort of be dragged out 
usually kicking and screaming, certainly in my case. Uh, and, and Well, you've got two types of dads, actually. The sporty ones, who were sort of keen, they were right out there, first out on the line, and then the ones like me who were desperately unfit and going to be totally humiliated, but drag kicking and screaming. But I've noticed this, that when the starter's whistle goes, every single one of those dads gives you everything they've got to get to the finishing line. They're all bursting a blood vessel to get there, aren't they? I mean, some of them are falling over flat on their face, usually me, uh, but they're all giving it everything, you know? And why do they do that? Well, maybe it's because they don't want to look stupid. But I suspect it's more the fact that little Johnny's looking on and, and the dad doesn't want to be the last one over the line so that his son doesn't have to have that supreme embarrassment, that supreme you know, shame of being the boy whose dad was last. And it's just the sort of thought that their kid might be laughed at. And so every dad gives you everything they've got to get there. And that's a little bit of what Paul is saying here, isn't it? He's saying, I don't want anyone to think less of Jesus to belittle Jesus. So I'm giving you everything I've got. That's why I'm so committed. That's why I'm even willing to lay down my life. That Christ might be exalted. So I say again, is that really our motive is that really our goal? Is that really our purpose? In Westminster Abbey, there's a section known as Poet's Corner. There's a memorial to John Milton. And this is what the memorial to John Milton says. In the year of our Lord, 1737, this bust of the author of Paradise Lost was placed there by William Benson Esquire, one of the two auditors of the impressed of His Majesty King George II, formerly Surveyor General of the Works to His Majesty King George I. Now, when you read that and you listen to that, it becomes absolutely clear who that memorial really is to. And it's not John Milton, is it? You know, some rich guy who had no hope of getting his, ever getting his name in Westminster, you know, uh, uh, Cathedral or Abbey. So what does he do? Well, he says, wow, I'll donate a bus to John Milton. And then I'll put this long inscription about how great I am and all the jobs I've done and how impressive my CV really is. It can be like that in Christian ministry, can't it? It can. Sometimes Jesus, tragically, can become an excuse or a vehicle for our own ego. Let me read you a little bit out of um, this book, The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. It's a brilliant little book if you've never read it. Uh, very thought-provoking and challenging. This is what he says. He said, It is woven of the fine threads of the self-life, the hyphenated sins of the human spirit. They're not something we do, they're something we are, and therein lies both their subtlety and their power. To be specific, the self-sins are these. Self-righteousness, self-pity, self-confidence, self-sufficiency, self-admiration, self-love, and a host of others like them. They dwell too deep within us and are too much a part of our natures to come to our attention till the light of God is focused upon them. The grosser manifestation of these sins, egotism, exhibitionism, self-promotion, are strangely tolerated in Christian leaders, even in circles of impeccable orthodoxy. They are so much in evidence as actually, for many people, to be, uh, sorry, they are so much in evidence as actually, for many people, to become identified with the gospel. I trust it is not a cynical observation to say that they appear these days to be a prerequisite for popularity in some sections of the church visible. Promoting self under the guise of promoting Christ 
is currently so common as to excite little notice. And I think he's right. Now, he wrote those words, I guess, back in the 1950s. But I think they're probably more relevant today than they've ever been. So easy, isn't it? Those self-sins, those hyphenated sins, as he calls them. Well, not so, Paul. In fact, if you want the acid test for how much Paul had died to self and was only concerned with the name of Jesus Christ, it comes in this passage. Look at verse 15. Paul says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. So it was happening right there in the early church, wasn't it? Just as much as it is today. Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But then listen to these words. Wow, I tell you what, this is the acid test for all of us, isn't it, folks? But what does it matter? What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Isn't that amazing? Paul says there's guys out there who, while I'm in prison, uh, are just making hay while the sun shines. They're loving every minute of it. What were they saying? I don't know. Maybe they were saying, well, Paul's in prison. Is it because he's unspiritual? You know, is the Lord punishing him? I don't know what they were saying. We don't know what they were saying. But they were certainly doing him down. You know, the snide comments. And I'm sure it hurt Paul. You know, just as much as it hurts any of us when people do us down and, and talk about us behind our back and belittle our ministry and question our motives. But you know what Paul says? Paul says, I have got to the position where all that matters to me is that Christ is preached. The name of Christ is exalted. That actually I don't care anymore what people say about me. Wow, what a test, isn't it? Let me ask you this question. Is there somebody in the Christian world, and you know what, I, if you've been in the Christian world any length of time, certainly in Christian ministry any length of time, I'm sure it will be true of every one of you, those who have been in a while. Can you think of somebody who's in Christian ministry, who knows you and you know them, and they don't think much of you, and you know that. And when you hear about God using and blessing their ministry, something within you wants to rise up within and criticise them. Ah, oh, yeah, but they may be doing this, but have you heard this? Or, do you know about this? Isn't that human nature? Yeah, I, I'll be honest with you now, this is not confession time, I'm not going to name any names. Although, when I say this, some people are going to put two and two together They know exactly what I'm talking about. doesn't matter. There is somebody in Christian ministry who sits on a committee and has blocked me being a speaker at that particular conference because they said, really, we don't rate this guy very much. We want quality. Whenever I hear the name of that person mentioned, something within me wants to criticise them. Wants to just find some point. Maybe subtle, you know, it won't be, aren't they terrible, but oh, well, they're not much. Now, why is that? Because they're evangelicals. They're preaching the gospel. They're doing a work for God. I know that. But they just don't think much of Paul Hinton. I know that too. See, what does that say about me? What that says about me is actually I'm more interested in my glory than in Christ. 
I'm more bothered about what people think about me than what they think about Jesus. And folks, that is blasphemy, isn't it? That's idolatry. How can I possibly want be more concerned about me than Christ? Now, I don't know if anyone here, maybe I'm just the big sinner here and nobody else can associate with that. Well, pray for me. Pray for me. But I suspect more of us than would like to admit know that it's true, don't we? Paul says it doesn't matter. Don't care. Because all that matters to me is Christ is preached. That's it. Full stop. See, Paul's purpose in life was that Christ would be exalted, not himself. What about Paul's priorities in life? What are Paul's priorities? Well, I think Paul would answer verse 22, where Paul says this. Sorry, my eyesight's going. Are you my glasses? Right, verse 22, here we are. Paul, what are your priorities in life? He says this, If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yes, what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that my being with you again, sorry, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. What does Paul say his priority is? What's the top of his to-do list? He says, do you know, top of my to-do list is to bless God's people, to work for God's church. He says, if I'm to remain alive, then that is what I'm going to give every moment to. Working for the church of God. Working for these Philippians, yes, that they might be encouraged and built up. Working for the gospel as well. In fact, he's able to say his need. They're back in verse 12. He says, actually, me being in prison has, has served well for the gospel of Jesus Christ because through me being in prison, Christians have been emboldened to preach Christ and preach the gospel. And so, you know, actually, that's the kind of ministry to believers, isn't it? Me being in prison and having a tough time, building up believers so that they're more and more confident. He says, that's what I want to do. And he says, I want to do that. Why? And this is the key, I think. So that, verse 24, my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. In other words, what he's saying is this. I want to bless you and build you up. Why? Because as I do that, you're going to love Jesus more, whom I love the most. You're going to want to serve Christ more, who means more to me than anything. Do you see how actually his Christian ministry his priorities fit perfectly with his purpose and his passion. Now, the reason I say that is because I think actually sometimes there can be a disconnection between our priority for Christian service and Christian ministry and a correct purpose and passion that is the glory of Christ and our love for Christ. It can get disconnected, can't it? It really can. So easily. I say again, is my service for Jesus an outflow of my love for him? You know, do I stand up to preach and, and each time I'm conscious that I'm doing this for Jesus and actually, even more than the spiritual need of the people I'm preaching to, even more than the spiritual need of the lost, I long that Christ might be glorified. And I want to say this, you know, a passion for preaching is different to a passion for Christ. And even a passion for the lost is different to a passion for Christ. 
certainly a passion for Christian ministry can be different to a passion for Christ. Or a passion for school's work and children's work can be different to a passion for Christ. Do you see that? It must derive and arise out of that central love for Jesus. So important. We've all got to ask ourselves the question, haven't we? Why are we here? Why are you here on this conference? We've asked that question of one or two people. And I know, you know, the answer's absolutely fair. But ultimately, what should all of our answer be? I know it sounds super spiritual a bit to say this, and maybe a bit, it sounds like a sort of one of those cliches. But it really should be, shouldn't it? Actually, I am here this week because I love Jesus. And I long to see him exalted and glorified. And I know the best way that that can happen is by giving my life in service to believers giving my life to preach the gospel to the lost. I know that Christ will be exalted in that way. Jesus is most glorified, isn't he? When sinners come to Christ when they're saved. Jesus is most glorified when believers love him more and want to live for him more. God is glorified when that happens. And actually, ultimately, that has got to be at the very heart of our passion and purpose, doesn't it? And our priorities. So is it? Is it really? Is it mine? So I guess we've all got to ask the question, haven't we, one another? What's your passion? What is your purpose? And what are your priorities? We started with um, Chuck Noland the guy whose passion was FedEx and his business and it was stripped away from him and he had nothing. His life was empty. Let me finish with a lady called Helen Rosevere who was a Christian ministry in Africa. Went out there, worked in a hospital, built the hospital up actually, almost with her own hands. Did a phenomenal work for God and then almost overnight that work that she had done was smashed to smithereens. There was the Congo uprising, the rebels came in, they had to flee. They killed some of the nurses. They ransacked the hospital. And that work that she'd given her life to building up was just wrecked, really. As she tried to flee the country. She was captured by the rebels and she was raped, brutalised. And she returned home. I think in her own words, she'd say a broken woman. Very honest about, about the trauma of all that she went through. And she said during those periods, those dark days when she first returned home, she kept asking herself the question, was it worth it? Was it worth it? And she said again and again, the answer came back to me, no. After all I'd done and then it had been wrecked, after all I'd been through, the rape and everything, was it really worth it? No, what is there to show for it? There's very little left of what we tried to build up. It wasn't worth it. And then she said, the Lord reminded me I was asking the wrong question. Not was it worth it, but was he worth it? You see, when everything was stripped away from Helen Rosevere, her missionary career, even her missionary work, she could still rejoice, couldn't she? Because actually, fundamentally, they weren't the heart of her passion and her purpose. Her passion was Jesus. Her priority was Christ. And he's always got to be worth it, hasn't he? He is worth it. Paul can say that. He's worth going through all that I'm going through. He's worth laying my life down. He is worth it. I wonder if we can say that. So there we are, just a little challenge from, uh, from this.
passage. I'm sure we could talk an awful lot more about why Paul says those things and the purpose and how they relate to the Philippian church, but perhaps for another time. Let's pray, shall we? Father God, we want to praise you and thank you tonight that our Lord Jesus Christ is worth it. Lord, forgive us when our gaze, our attention, our focus is taken off him and onto other things. And Lord, we all want to acknowledge before you and repent of, really, our other loves that have intruded upon that one supreme love that have distracted us sometimes from him. Particularly, Lord, forgive us for our love of self and our desire to exalt self and to be well thought of by others. And Father, we struggle so much with that. Lord, help us to put that hyphenated sin to death. Help us to nail it to the cross, Lord. To really do that. Oh God, give us a heart like Paul that just rejoices that Jesus' name is proclaimed by whoever, whenever. Lord, give us a a passion for Jesus. Lord, if our passion has waned, if it's grown dim, if it's just been worn down, if we feel very barren today because of just busyness of life and Christian ministry, Lord, renew our passion for Jesus this week. Lord, help us to fall, maybe in love with him again, more deeply in love with him. Lord, help us to sort out our motivation. May it be his glory that we're working for. And therefore, Lord, Help us to go back to our ministries with renewed commitment, renewed determination, renewed zeal and vigour and energy to serve your people, to serve your church, to reach the lost. Because ultimately we love the Saviour. We love Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.